0: Excited Utterance, the evidence and proof podcast, episode number 136, James Stone, past acts evidence in excessive force litigation. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Joining me on the podcast today is James Stone, a 3L at Stanford Law School, who has already published a truly excellent article in the Washington University Law Review. The article is entitled Past Acts Evidence in Excessive Force Litigation. And as you'll hear in my conversation with James today, the article takes an empirical look at how 404B is perhaps applied asymmetrically in these excessive force cases. Now, James's article has deservedly garnered quite a bit of attention. There are numerous news articles, including an article on Above the Law, that you can find online about this piece. It's hugely important, an excellent paper from an aspiring academic. I hope you enjoy my conversation with James today. James, welcome to Excited Utterance.
1: Uh, Thanks, Alex. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Well, today, our focus is the intersection of excessive force litigation and past acts as evidence. Such an important topic. I'm so thrilled that we have you on the show to talk about this. And maybe to kick us off, you could give us a little bit of background on what led you to the topic, what led you to the focus.
1: Sure. So it was 2021. Derek Chauvin was on trial for the murder of George Floyd, and there was I think will come as no surprise to folks listening that it was really in the air, discussions about how to reform policing. One of the main reform ideas that was in the air was police transparency laws, making records of officers' misconduct available to the public. And at the time, I started to wonder, are these records even admissible at trial? So that started things and quickly the project expanded to looking more generally at how both officers and plaintiffs past surface in excessive force litigation. And what I discovered really was a double standard an inequity, I think, in the ways that past acts evidence get treated for officer defendants versus plaintiffs in these cases.
0: Well, it's fantastic. I really enjoyed the paper. And as we build up to that insight, I want to lay some groundwork first just to get our listeners up to speed on the context here. And then we'll focus on that contribution, as I said, which I think is very important. But first, let's set the stage. So give us a picture, if you would, James, of the legal landscape available to victims after an excessive force incident. What types of cases can they pursue? Is it easy? Is it difficult? What does that landscape look like?
1: Sure. So my paper focuses on civil remedies. Obviously, officers who Engage in errant uses of force can be criminally prosecuted, but the focus here is on civil avenues. So victims of police violence really have a few options in that regard, maybe none of them ideal. The most prominent and common one is to sue an officer under 42 U.S. Code Section 1983. Those are so-called 1983 actions. Those allow plaintiffs to sue state officers who violate their constitutional rights while acting under color of state law. These actions are particularly popular because they provide for punitive damages, and successful plaintiffs can also collect attorney's fees. Manel claims, which are sort of a subset of 1983 claims, allow plaintiffs to sue a city or county for the constitutional violations of their officers. That's not a vicarious liability theory. You really have to prove that the officer violated your constitutional rights and that that was caused by some policy or custom on the part of the city. And then beyond those, plaintiffs can sue officers under state tort theories like battery or assault. Those are a little less attractive often because the states sometimes cap damages or don't allow for punitive damages. And then I guess finally, plaintiffs can sue in federal court federal officers through Bivens' actions, at least for certain specific constitutional rights that have been violated. The Supreme Court's pretty strictly limited the use of Bivens' actions in recent years.
0: So it seems then, like seemingly, that there are a lot of different avenues to bring a claim in the excessive force context. But you note, though, that there are significant hurdles that prevent effective litigation against officers, right? So first, what are some of the constitutional barriers at issue?
1: I think there's two big ones. The one that perhaps many listeners will have heard of is qualified immunity. So that's an officer immunity doctrine that renders officers immune from suit unless they were violating clearly established law of which a reasonable person would have been aware. So that means that even if the officer violated the Fourth Amendment, say, in an excessive force incident, he'll still be off the hook if there wasn't very, very direct precedent saying that what he did was unconstitutional. This standard is almost impossible to meet, and a lot of people have written about how difficult it can be to overcome qualified immunity in federal litigation, so 1983 cases and Bivens' actions against officers. The other constitutional barrier that's much more relevant to the paper is Graham versus Connor, which it's a Supreme Court case that says that when you're trying to determine whether an officer violated the Fourth Amendment, you have to use an objective reasonableness standard. So the reasonableness of an officer's use of force is going to be determined from the perspective of some objectively reasonable officer at the scene, not with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, not making any inquiries into the subjective state of mind or intent of the actual officer at the scene. So an officer's evil intentions are not going to turn an objectively reasonable use of force into a Fourth Amendment violation. And importantly, the court in outlining and then fleshing out this standard over the years often uses language stressing the split second decision making that officers have to make in a way that has kind of narrowed the objective reasonableness inquiry often to what's going on right at the moment of the use of force, as opposed to looking at, say, a longer period of escalatory behavior that the officer engaged in that maybe led to the force incident. So those are really the two big constitutional barriers that plaintiffs face.
0: Are there any other hurdles that exist that might prevent a successful excessive force case?
1: Tons. So first of all, as you might expect, these excessive force incidents often stem from or relate to criminal charges that are levied against the plaintiff in these cases. So for example, if you're beaten up while resisting arrest, you're going to have to fight off the criminal charge. And that's probably going to be your focus rather than civil litigation. In some cases, criminal charges that stem from an incident can actually preclude you from suing the officer in the first place under a doctrine from a case called Heck versus Humphrey. That's really going to be in situations where the plaintiff suit implicitly challenges the validity of their conviction. And officers also occasionally just manufacture charges to cover up their own excessive use of force. So those are called cover charges. And the Department of Justice has found that police departments in various cities have ingrained practices in which this occurs, or at least errant officers doing this in different cities. So there's going to be criminal charges. When plaintiffs sue cities, there's going to be unique challenges, often stemming from trial bifurcation. So if a plaintiff sues both an officer and the city, What usually happens is the trial gets bifurcated, so the plaintiff has to litigate against the officer first, and if they can prove that the officer violated their Fourth Amendment rights in the excessive force context, then they can graduate and move on to litigating against the city to prove that it was the city's policy or custom that caused that. The problem with this is that it is inefficient, it's costly, time-consuming, and it keeps the plaintiff from presenting the entirety of the evidence related to their harm in front of the jury. They've got to parcel it out. And then finally, when plaintiffs are actually in court, they may well face skeptical juries due to evidence that surfaces about their past criminal records or drug use that may have led to the police encounter in the first place. And officers might face comparatively deferential juries, folks who trust law enforcement. So These are just a few, honestly, of a lot of nightmarish thicket procedural and other difficulties that keep plaintiffs from successfully vindicating their rights against officers.
0: Yeah, I think you have convinced me, James, that there are quite a few barriers here, quite a few hurdles that prevent successful litigation in the excessive force context. But I'm feeling optimistic. So I want to just imagine that a case is indeed successfully brought despite all the hurdles, despite all the important barriers that you just mentioned. If a case is brought, what types of past acts or past act evidence is typically at issue in the context of one of these excessive force cases?
1: Yeah, so plaintiffs are going to tend to want to introduce evidence of an officer's past misconduct. That's going to be past excessive force incidents related to that officer. It might be the officer's past record of having falsified reports or fabricated evidence. Stuff like that. Officers are going to tend to try to introduce evidence of a plaintiff's past drug use, felony status, or criminal activity, gang affiliation, stuff like that. What I saw was really quite a pattern here of both parties trying to introduce this kind of evidence against each other.
0: Even if we have past acts in these cases, though, of course, we're going to run headlong into that kind of looming bastion that is the federal rules of evidence, right? So, first, let's imagine how different rules of evidence intersect with past acts in the excessive force context. And I want to begin by pointing to actually the relevance rules. Descriptively, how do the relevance rules intersect with excessive force litigation and past acts in excessive force litigation? The big picture
1: here is that most police misconduct records, at least in 1983 litigation, are going to be found irrelevant and inadmissible. And this is going to stem in large part from the fact that judges' applications of the relevance rules end up falling victim to ambiguities in objective reasonableness jurisprudence. So like I said about the Graham versus Connor objective reasonableness standard earlier, an officer's state of mind is totally irrelevant when assessing the objective reasonableness of their use of force. So let's say an officer tells a friend one night I'm gonna find an excuse to beat up the next person I see tomorrow, and let's say the officer beats up a suspect the next day, that past statement will be totally irrelevant if the officer's actions were otherwise objectively reasonable. So the first big point here is that most past acts evidence that goes towards anything going on in the officer's head is going to be irrelevant. Now, a quick caveat to that is that for state torts like assault or battery, where the standard isn't the Fourth Amendment, but is just going to be a state tort theory, the evidence may be relevant. These are intentional torts, so they have intent elements. And in those cases, when past evidence of an officer's misconduct goes to their state of mind, it may well be relevant. So what happens in those cases is 403 then often jumps in. Judges might be facing situations where a plaintiff has sued under both state tort theories and 1983 cause of action. And in that kind of a case, sometimes judges exclude the evidence entirely, even though it's relevant for the state tort theories, on the grounds that it'll confuse the jury or be unduly prejudicial against the officer. Other courts have found the opposite and will just use a limiting instruction. So they'll admit evidence going to an officer's state of mind for the state theories, but not the federal cause of action. I think the thornier problem that judges run into, and that I hope through this paper I can clarify, is there's this little intermediary ground where past acts evidence can go to an officer's knowledge of the circumstances at the time of the use of force. The knowledge component there is more likely to be relevant, even under the Graham standard, but I think it's a difficult line for courts to draw. So let me give an example There's a Seventh Circuit case called Burton versus City of Zion that I talk about in the paper. And in that case, there's a trial against an officer. And here's what the jury hears. The jury hears that the plaintiff, a woman named Casey Burton, is driving with an expired registration, something like that. And officer named Officer Richard pulls up behind her and activates the squad car lights. Now, she does not pull over. So this raises some alarm bells, perhaps. She does not pull over. She drives all the way home, obeying traffic rules, but drives all the way home. Other officers have jumped in. So there's a number of squad cars following her. She gets home, gets out of her car. And the minute she gets out of her car, Officer Richard and another officer subdue her. So Officer Richard activates a straight arm takedown. I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds unpleasant. And another officer kneels on Burton's back, which injures her. So the jury hears all this and finds for the defendant officers, saying it sounds objectively reasonable. And, and an officer whose suspect just continued driving instead of pulling over, or was perhaps fleeing, who knows what they were trying to hide. They could have been dangerous. What the jury does not hear is that this same officer, Officer Richard, had tased Casey Burton in an altercation six years before. And knew that this was her when he was following her. So the Seventh Circuit ends up reversing the district court's exclusion of that evidence. And the Seventh Circuit says, hold on here. That knowledge stemming from that past tasing incident is critical in considering why Burton didn't stop her car. She was afraid that she was going to be injured again and wanted there to be witnesses when she got out of her car. So the court clarified this with another example, which is imagining an officer who's calling to someone with a suspect with their back to him. And the officer says, freeze, put your hands on your head. And the person ignores him. And the officer shoots them with a taser. Let's say that officer finds out that that particular person is deaf. So they had no idea that he was calling at them to put their hands on their head. If that same officer encounters that same person a year later, and the same incident happens where the officer is yelling at them to do something and that person is not responding, it's got to be relevant to assessing the reasonableness of that officer's use of force that they understand a particular trait about that suspect that's going to influence the way they're acting, that's going to reduce fears that the person is sort of actively resisting arrest, for example. So I think that this weird knowledge area scares some judges, like the district judge in the Seventh Circuit case, Burton, said, oh, the officer of the past misconduct, it seems to be going to knowledge of the officer, which I guess is sort of like state of mind. I got to keep this out. This is not relevant under Graham. I think that many judges make that mistake. I think that knowledge is not really contravening the objective reasonableness standard. And just a quick last point is that just like evidence of things that are known to the officer are relevant in this context things that are unknown to the officer will be irrelevant so if an officer encounters a suspect who points a gun at him by the way i should apologize i know that these are somewhat violent examples but if the suspect points a gun at the officer and the officer shoots that suspect in return it won't be relevant to assessing the officer's use of force if that suspect's gun was not loaded. Because for all the officer knew, it was loaded. And an objectively reasonable officer in that situation would have perhaps reasonably feared for his or others' lives. So that cuts both ways, so to speak. Officer knowledge will be relevant. Officer lack of knowledge will not be relevant.
0: And James, I think that these are such effective and powerful examples. And it leaves me at a place where I want to shift our conversation ever so slightly from the descriptive to the normative and think about reform for a second. So given these examples, given what you have seen in excessive force litigation, how should we reform the relevance rules to better accommodate victims or to to better accommodate this particular context?
1: I think specifically talking about police misconduct records, rather than changing the text of the rules, I think we should be encouraging judges to simply have a broader and I think more accurate understanding of the intersection between Rule 401 and Graham versus Connor. So I think that courts should be open to viewing an officer's past acts as relevant as long as it informs that officer's knowledge of some circumstances at the scene when they are engaged in the use of force. So as an example, imagine an officer is chasing a suspect who has really baggy and loose pants and is holding his pants up while he's running away. And say the officer shoots and injures this person who's fleeing. In the litigation, I think that evidence of that officer's having done the same thing, having shot another fleeing suspect frantically trying to hold up his pants during the pursuit, I think that that evidence should be relevant if it goes toward the officer's knowledge that when the guy's grabbing at his pants, he's trying to hold up his pants. He's not grabbing at a gun, for example. So in those kinds of cases, an officer's past acts may inform a generalized knowledge that should inform their behavior. I think an objectively reasonable officer with certain past experiences would behave differently than an objectively reasonable officer Without them. And I think that that's fairly within the bounds of Graham versus Connor's standard. And I think judges should be more receptive to that.
0: Of course, James, I think I can hear our listeners yelling at me through their headphones right now. If we're talking about past acts and we're talking about past act evidence, it's going to be Rule 404B that takes center stage, right? So how does Rule 404B intersect with the excessive force context and this discussion of past acts?
1: Right. So 404B, as the character evidence rule as a whole does, prohibits the use of past acts for propensity purposes. It allows evidence of a party's past, however, if it goes to something else like motive, opportunity, intent, plan, preparation, knowledge, absence of mistake, identity. So there are ways to get in past acts as long as you're not trying to use them to show the person's bad character and that they acted in accordance with that character. The rule ends up applying differently for officers and plaintiffs. I've sort of talked about how it works for officers earlier in the sense that most 404B uses of police misconduct records will be extinguished by the objective reasonableness standard in Graham. So evidence going towards intent, motive, plan, those are all 404B avenues to admissibility, but those are going to run headlong into the objective reasonableness standard. We're not allowed to consider those, so that evidence will not be admissible under 404B. But as I say before, maybe evidence going towards an officer's knowledge can be brought in under 404B, obviously the knowledge exception, but also maybe absence of mistake, or lack of accident. So that same example I gave about the officer chasing the guy with the baggy jeans holding his pants up, if the officer argues that he mistakenly believed the suspect to be armed, maybe it's relevant. Maybe you can get evidence of the past shooting incident in the same context in under 404B to prove absence of mistake. That wasn't reasonable to mistakenly believe that the leading suspect was grabbing at a gun. So that's how it works for officers. For plaintiffs, on the other hand, the past act's evidence comes in mainly under motive, intent, and plan theories within 404B. So officers tend to try to introduce evidence of plaintiff's past drug use, gang affiliation, criminal record, or past criminal activity to argue that it helps explain a plaintiff's behavior during the arrest or helps prove that the plaintiff acted a certain way during the encounter. So this surfaces often when the plaintiff says say the officer x attacked me and officer x says plaintiff attacked me so there's a dispute about what actually happened in those cases a plaintiff's being high at the time or affiliated with a gang or having a stolen gun on him might be relevant under a motive theory you can imagine that the plaintiff may be motivated to act more aggressively or erratically with those particular things going on. So even if the officer doesn't know about the past act in those contexts, it might still be relevant to a jury when figuring out what actually happened. Another theory that pops up is a defense of suicide by cop. So sometimes defendant officers will claim that the plaintiff intended to sort of goad the officer into killing them. So their past encounters with police occasionally surface in trial to help prove that defense theory. So I think there's a case that I discuss in the paper about how 404B factors in to these evidentiary problems related to the plaintiffs or the victims of police violence that's maybe worth going over. So that's about a woman named Genevieve Dawes, who in 2017 is sleeping beside her boyfriend in a car right outside an apartment complex, I think, in Dallas. It's the middle of the night, somebody in the apartment calls the police to report a suspicious vehicle, and the officer named Officer Hess and some others are called to the scene. Officer Hess walks over to the car, shines a flashlight in, startling Genevieve Dawes and her partner awake, and in the ensuing confusion, Dawes turns on the car and starts to back it up slowly. She backs it up around three miles an hour. There's no one behind the car. The officers are in front of the car, so she's going away from them. Nonetheless, Officer Hess shoots 13 bullets into the car, killing Genevieve Dawes. The defense tried to introduce and succeeded in introducing evidence at Hess's criminal trial. So this is a, a criminal trial, not civil, but the same issues show up nonetheless. The officers get in evidence that Dawes was high at the time, that she was in a car that had been reported stolen, and that there was a stolen gun in the car. None of that was known to Officer Hess at the time that he fired the shot. But the defense tries to get the evidence in on a 404B theory of motive, the motive being maybe Dawes was thinking, I'm not going to go to jail today. I'm going to drive away or do whatever I have to do to get away from this officer. The prosecutor argued the opposite. Why she backed up her car at three miles an hour is not relevant, because it's clear what she did. She backed up her car. That doesn't change what Officer Hess did. Did. The judge sides with the defense, so the evidence gets in. And if you listen to the opening and closing arguments, the fact that Dawes was high and the fact that there was a stolen gun in the car ends up making quite a repeated and stressed appearance in the arguments. So the defense repeatedly, I think three times in the course of only two minutes, calls her decision to turn on the car drug-induced. Later, the defense attorney says, what are the lengths that she and her partner would go to evade arrest, given the stolen vehicle or the stolen car? And Hess ends up being acquitted. So what we have here, I think, is evidence that is of somewhat minimal relevance in assessing the officer's conduct. Again, it's stuff the officer didn't even know about, but is highly, highly prejudicial against the victim. So I think we have a real double standard here where very little past acts evidence gets in under 404B against the officer, but lots does, uh, and really prejudicial stuff does against a lot of the victims.
0: And James, yet again, I think that's such an effective and even disturbing to hear example. And it leads me questioning what we can do to reform our evidence rules to to better handle this context or to better level the playing field. So I'm curious, do you have any thoughts on reforming now Rule 404B to better accommodate the excessive force context?
1: I do have some ideas that I argue for in the paper. I think for officers and cities, I don't think there's any need to change the written rules. I think that a faithful application of rules 401, 402, 403, and 404B are going to reach better admissibility decisions. So I think, again, as I've said, judges should have a broader understanding of the relevance of misconduct records about individual officers, especially when they go in under Rule 404B's exception for past acts evidence going towards the officer's knowledge. And more generally, when applying the balancing test in Rule 403, weighing the evidence's probative value against its potential to prejudice the jury or confuse the jury, I think judges should be a lot more cognizant of the default trust that the public places in police and potentially the skepticism with which they view some of the plaintiffs in these cases. And then finally, in joint suits against officers and municipalities, I suggest foregoing trial bifurcation So evidence that's relevant just against the city or just against the officer should just show up in the same trial where the judge can give limiting instructions to the jury. For plaintiffs, I think a much more aggressive approach is warranted. And this is really for three reasons. The first reason is that this kind of past acts evidence that surfaces against plaintiffs in excessive force litigation, it's all super prejudicial. Studies show that people addicted to drugs are viewed as violent. It shows that people with past criminal records can face huge stigma. I think it's unsurprising that a jury learning that someone's affiliated with a gang is going to be prejudicial. So I think this evidence reinforces a sense that the plaintiff was either a bad person or was marginal or worthless. I think that these things can contribute to ingrained racist prejudices. I think that it's really, really nasty past acts evidence. The second point is that it's usually of very limited relevance. So it's really nasty and it's usually close to completely irrelevant in the particular excessive force inquiries that I'm writing about. The officer usually doesn't know about the plaintiff's past when the force happens. And the fact that a plaintiff resisted arrest or ran from the officer might be important, but why they did so is going to be a lot less important in this inquiry. The third point is that even when it's unknown to the officer, but nonetheless relevant. In those cases I talked about where the plaintiff's conduct is disputed, exactly what happened is not clear. Even in these cases, I just think there's not a lot of situations where that's going to be the only evidence that helps explain what actually happened during the encounter between the officer and the plaintiff. So for example, body cam footage or other witnesses may well provide a better light on exactly what happened between the plaintiff and the officer. And in the presence of that evidence, it seems like a shame to admit really prejudicial past acts evidence that doesn't even do as good a job of showing what happened as these alternative sources of evidence. So I think this shows that without cabining judges' discretion explicitly, too much of this evidence is going to get into trials. And I think it does really work an unfortunate effect. So I actually propose changing the federal rules of evidence to impose a stricter balancing test on certain kinds of past acts evidence against plaintiffs in these cases. So the test basically reads that if unknown to the law enforcement officer at the time of alleged excessive force, the court can admit a plaintiff's past drug use, intoxication at the time of the incident, criminal record or criminal activity, or gang affiliation, but only if the evidence's probative value outweighs the potential for undue prejudice or needlessly presenting cumulative evidence. So I think that that stricter balancing test, making it harder to admit this evidence, helps level the playing field, it sort of rectifies this double standard that shows up in these cases.
0: And that leads me to one final question, which is kind of our classic last question on excited utterance. But what do you think is next for the literature here, right? What type of additional paper could give us more insight, could help foster further reform on this particular topic of excessive force litigation and past act evidence?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot that can be done in the intersection of evidence law and excessive force litigation. So one thing that I hope to see and maybe even do if I haven't seen someone else do it by the time I'm ready is a more empirical statistical analysis of the admissibility decisions in this area going on in specific jurisdictions. So I think sort of more empirical evidence here on the ground would be very helpful in seeing whether past acts evidence is being admitted in different ways than it used to be, what stuff is actually getting in, I think that my paper is a bird's eye view, and it's really a doctrinal understanding and a a survey of some cases, but more strict empirical work would be helpful. I also think it would be cool to have some sort of work on the way that judges apply Rule 403 in these contexts, specifically whether and to what extent any courts are considering more ingrained trust of law enforcement or distrust of law enforcement nowadays when assessing the evidence's potential to prejudice the jury. I'm kind of curious to see if there's any work on that. I haven't seen anything. So those would be two of, I think, really many ways in which these subjects of evidence and excessive force intersect in sort of interesting ways.
0: Well, James, I really enjoyed hearing from you today, this discussion. I really enjoyed reading your paper. I encourage our listeners to go check it out as well. Thanks so much for coming on, Excited Utterance. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. By way of some concluding remarks, I want to again praise James's paper. I think he does an excellent job of analyzing how 404b cashes out in the excessive force context. And more than that, he couples his normative claim with empirical insight. And I think that is so immensely valuable in legal scholarship. As I think back, just off the top of my head, and I'm sure I'm going to omit some fantastic papers here, and that's not intentional, I can assure you. But as I think back, just off the top of my head again, At some of my favorite evidence pieces that I've read in recent years, almost all of them have some empirical component, right? I can think of Valerie Hans's excellent work analyzing the jury. I can think of Jeff Bellin's paper looking at the evidence rules that convict the innocent or his paper looking at the silence penalty that is ascribed to defendants in the the courtroom who refuse to testify. Of course, Justin Sevier's work, analyzing the empirical bases and the empirical justifications for the hearsay rule, has been hugely influential in my own work. Additionally, I read recently another paper by Rick Simmons at Ohio State, who brought an empirical perspective to Rule 609, as many others have done as well. And stepping back here, my broader point is that empirical scholarship, scholarship like James's paper, That, again, couples that kind of policy prescription with empirical evidence about what's actually happening in the courtroom. I think that is so tremendously valuable. I know far too often when I'm teaching my evidence class, I get wrapped up in the theory or even the lore of how evidence law is supposed to work in the courtroom. And what I mean by that is that there's this narrative that, of course, if you're introducing evidence for a permissible and an impermissible purpose, uh, well, the jury will only use that evidence for the permissible purpose. If you have a piece of problematic evidence, well, we want to shield that evidence from the jury, but it's okay for a judge to handle that evidence because a judge has the capability of better segmenting his or her mind to effectively handle that evidence. Yet again, I'm finding this lore is consistently broken down in empirical study after empirical study. So I think we all owe a debt of gratitude to James today, again, for highlighting this central issue of 404B evidence, past acts evidence in the excessive force context, and I hope that this paper will be a motivation for us all to not take the evidence rules, not take evidence lore, if you will, at face value, but to really dig deeper and see what's actually happening in the courtroom. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. The producer of Excited Utterance is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Madeline Pietro. Music for Excited Utterance is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle-Greer. I'm your host, Alex Nunn. And I hope you'll join us next time when we tackle another piece in the world of evidence and proof.